Eagles Entertainment. Eagle Eye in the Sky is fueled by Gatorade, the official sports drink of the Philadelphia Eagles. Everything that moves, I don't care who it is. Let's go. Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. Touchdown! You are listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Fran Duffy. That's right, another week, and we've got our first off-season scouting report episode today as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade, continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and as always, I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 303. At the top of this week's show, we've got scouting report, where I chat with Ben Fennell about the number one seed in the NFC, the Green Bay Packers, as Ben and I went through all of their explosive runs of 10-plus yards on film. This is our first scouting report episode of the show here this off-season, where every week, We will dive into a specific player, a specific scheme, watch the film separately, and then get together right here on the show to share our thoughts. So what did we see? What traits stood out? How? What about from a schematic standpoint? Were there any big takeaways there? We will talk about all of that right at the top of the show, but that's not the end of the podcast because at the end of today's show, I also caught up with Eagles linebacker TJ Edwards in a really fun conversation about his background and how everything he did as a kid got him ready to play linebacker in the NFL. Before we get there, though, just a couple of things I want to make sure we hit on. Number one, I will always ask you every episode if you can go over to our Apple podcast page and just leave us a quick review. Not only does it help us out in making the show more visible to other podcast listeners, but it also helps us out in being able to answer your questions. So if you've ever wondered about a specific X's and O's to- topic, a, uh, a play or a concept, any kind of scheme or a topic around player evaluation, the draft, free agency, you name it, we will answer it for you here on the show. I appreciate everybody who has done so recently. You guys are the best, and it really allows us to help keep this show rolling twice a week here throughout the entire calendar year. Now, if you also enjoy my conversations with Ben here, every single week. Make sure you also go subscribe to the Journey to the Draft podcast. It's officially draft season. The Senior Bowl, just a few days away. I'll be doing daily episodes covering that event. We had a huge announcement with the Combine this week. Underclassmen are declaring left and right. You do not want to miss out on any of the news over on the Journey to the Draft podcast. You can go find that wherever podcasts can be found. And every single week over on that show, I always welcome an Eagles college scout or personnel man to talk about a current Eagles player and how he has evaluated him coming out of college. Well, this this week, I welcomed in uh, Eagles Assistant Director of Player Personnel Ian Cunningham to talk about tight end Dallas Goddard and kind of get his thoughts on him from way back when he was coming out of South Dakota State in 2018. Here's what he had to say. Well, happy to be joined this week by Eagles Assistant Director of Player Personnel Ian Cunningham to talk about Eagles tight end Dallas Goddard. Now, uh, it's been a couple years in the league, former second-round pick out of South Dakota State. Uh, Ian, take us back in time a little bit. What was your your feeling, your projection on Dallas uh, when he was coming out? And take us a little bit inside the evaluation. You know, Fran, I remember uh, watching TCU, I believe it was 2016, South Dakota State played at TCU, and it was Dallas's junior year. And there was a guy at South Dakota State that kept flashing on tape. I was actually watching TCU tape, and I was like, who is this guy? They ended up having him, Dallas, and another, uh, actually a receiver the following year. And then fast forward to the 2017 season, thinking that I was going to be able to see him in Frisco at the at the championship game. Unfortunately, they lost to JMU that year, but was really excited to be able to go see him there because I wasn't able to get to South Dakota State during the fall. And then uh, fast forward then to the com or to the Senior Bowl. And at the Senior Bowl, you get to see him finally get to see what he looks like in person, how he looks in his pads, how he moves around. It was good to see him for a short period of time because he got hurt in the, at, the, at the Senior Bowl. 
And then you go to the combine, same thing. He wasn't able to go through the combine drills, but we did get a chance to interview him at the combine, get a chance to sit down and get to know him a little bit. And obviously on the 30 visit, um, but, you know, watching Dallas and evaluating him, you saw a big physical uh, specimen at the tight end position to play what we call F tight end. Uh, he was out, outside in the slot, but then you had the, a couple plays where you saw him in line as a blocker. And you project, hey, this guy could be a Y force as well or a complete tight end. And that's what you're really looking for. And that year, it was him and a couple of other players as one of the top tight ends coming out. And just evaluating him against that talent at South Dakota State, you wanted to see if he could dominate that level of talent, and he did. And then fast forward, kind of going back and looking at the TCU game, he dominated the, the talent at TCU as well. So it was good to watch him and good to be able to evaluate him because you were, you were able to see the things that were going to we were needing to see if he was going to be able to translate on our level. And we got to see that at South Dakota state and versus uh, TCU as well. I remember one of the, the big narratives about Dallas, you know, when it was coming out was oh, you know, great pass catcher, but like, you know, what can he be as a blocker? He wasn't asked to do it. And I remember talking with uh, Eagles tight ends coach, Justin Peel um, after the draft. And it was like, all right, well, let's, let's pull a couple plays where you can kind of see the flashes but at this game, you know, this kid, he's 6'5", 6'6", he's 255. Like, we can coach that into him. And I, I guess it goes back to that discussion of, you know, it's not what you, you know, just because you weren't asked to do it often in college doesn't mean you can do it or you can't do it in the NFL. He comes in the league and becomes one of the best blocking tight ends, uh, certainly in the NFL, in short order. Correct. You just want to look for the the, the body control, the balance, uh, the core strength, the movement off the snap. If he's what we call, can he uncoil his hips? Can he unlock his hips? Uh, obviously, the technique work. That's why we have a coach like Coach Peel, who's outstanding. He's going to get him technically sound and he's going to develop him. And that's what he did with Dallas because he's really turned himself into a complete tight end. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining us once again here on the Journey of the Draft podcast. Again, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk to you soon, man. Talk to you soon. You too. So that was just that initial part of that interview for the entire segment. Make sure you go check out the Journey to the Draft podcast. I've been doing these interviews every single week this season. You can go back and listen to all of them right on that feed. Now, speaking of Journey to the Draft, let's talk about the guy who was on every single episode of that show with me. That's Ben Fennell. Let's dive into our chat now in Scouting Report. Dim those lights. We're headed to the film room for the Scouting Report. All right, well, let's get things going here with my friend Ben Fennell. Ben, uh, fun assignment this week for us as we went back and watched all of the Green Bay Packers' explosive runs, the runs of 10-plus yards. Now, some teams will say, uh, you know, some runs of 8-plus. We carried it down to 10-plus. It ended up being 44 total plays. Now, I want to ask you, number one, the timeliness, the timeliness of this was great because the Packers' run game was outstanding this weekend in their win over the L.A. Rams. But I want to ask you this now. What was your strategy going into this? What, what was your focus going to be on? Did you want to look at the talent and look at it from a traits-based standpoint? Were you looking from a scheme standpoint? Uh, what was your thought going into watching this clip? Yeah, I definitely want to see the marriage between the talent and the scheme that Matt LaFleur is using. Obviously, they have very talented players and Aaron Rodgers, David Bakhtiari, Aaron Jones, Elton Jenkins is an ascending young player as well. But in combination with what Matt LaFleur is doing schematically with all the misdirections and the motions and the use of RPOs and um, how much the scheme is helping the offense and in particular the run game be effective. Hmm. And I think it's a really interesting marriage of talent and scheme uh, together. 
So that's always almost always going to be my approach is like kind of a mix of both. You guys know I'm, I'm big into uh, the NFL draft, so I'll be looking at it from a trait standpoint, but uh, the scheme of it and the structure of it also will be uh, you know at the f- forefront of my mind as well. So with that being said, Look, this will be since it's our first one. Uh, it'll be a little bit free flowing. I want to try and get a sense of you know a, a set structure to this segment each and every week. But I guess the first thing we'll start off with is just the biggest takeaway. You know, and after watching all of these runs, what was your biggest takeaway um, from coming away? Just kind of watching it as a whole. My biggest takeaway, Fran, is you know certain defenders out there, and you hear coaches say, "If I could just get you to not think out there, you're going to play so much faster." And there's so many guys that are slowed down with the action between the ears that slows down their physical ability. And so many times, if I could just get him to stop thinking out there, just play fast. What the Packers do is make you think. And there's some defenders out there you don't want thinking. And they get you to think. And I think a lot of that is really interesting. And when you watch particularly the linebackers, the mics, the wills, their run fits, their eye discipline in combination with all that misdirection and motion and moving parts and whether it's jet sweeps or split zone, a tight end coming across, whether it's the boot fake out the back door, there's a lot of moving parts in this run scheme and it just takes linebackers out of their comfort zone. And you can literally see the brain processing going uh, in a post snap sense and saying they're forcing these guys to think after the snap and it causes them to hesitate. And it causes them to get themselves out of position. And in the run game, in the NFL, all you need is a half step. All you need is a half a second. And then you're leveraging a block. You're leveraging a gap. You're getting somebody out of position. So the fact that this offense really forces defenders to think post-snap, it just really takes some of these reads and keys uh, kind of away from the defense. And it just makes them into thinkers rather than whiteboard players. There was a play, I believe it was week one against the Vikings where it was a backside linebacker with Eric Kendricks. And you could see, I mean, he was, he was in quicksand and not because from an athletic standpoint, we know Kendricks is a a great athlete for the position. He was just looking at everything that was going on in front of him. I think it was a split zone run. So you had a tight end coming backside. You also had jet motion on the backside. He was completely stuck and his eyes were in the wrong place. And Aaron Jones was going out the front door and was you know unabated. There was nobody there uh, in that gap, and that's because they were able to hold Kendricks, uh, you know, who was a a good player, hold him hmm. in place with all the different backfield actions. I, I agree with you. That's certainly a big part of their game. And it's not even like they were just preying on the young linebackers. It was Eric Kendricks. It was Demario yeah. Davis. It was yep. Devin Whites. It was you know some of the best line, De- Deion Jones, some of the best linebackers in the league, completely taken out of their element. I think I put up a play on Twitter from Week 17, Danny Trevathan been in this league for eight years and you just see all the different eye violations and different eye candy for him to pay attention to. And you saw the jet motion come, the tight end go across the formation, the boot out the back door, all in combination. He took a pass drop. He was completely out of his element in reading the run. And Danny Trevathan's a good player. And it just takes some of these good players completely out of their comfort zone. So my biggest takeaway was, just how multifaceted they were. And that's not overly surprising. You know, you're talking about any time you're talking about a good unit in the NFL, if you're talking about, you know, good third down defense or good pass coverage in the red zone, whatever it is, you're going to see, hey, they win in lots of ways. But watching this Packers run game, 
not only did you have all the different tools to affect the second and third level defenders that we just talked about, but you had, first of all, you had the talent from the running backs. You know, Aaron Jones, to me, one of the most underrated players uh, in the NFL. Their communication up front along the offensive line, I thought, especially uh, guard, center guard, I thought when you look at the, the, their timing on reach blocks and combo blocks and the zone run game was so, so good. But they also were moving people up front. You saw guys, uh, you know, moving, moving defenders against their will. The scheme was good. The tools were good. The traits were good. Offensive line, running back, Aaron Rodgers is running, you know, the boot, and you have the, the backside defensive lineman worrying about that as well. I just thought there were so many things working in tandem uh, to, you know, be able to execute an outstanding run game. So, uh, yeah. go ahead. Now, I was just going to say, uh, you know, some of the other trends, you know, inside of that, I just kind of took some nuggets down as I was buzzing through yeah. the uh, the 44 plays at 10 plus. And they uh, tacked on a couple more from the past weekend. You know, a couple of the themes, not many scrambles from the quarterback anymore. So yeah. a lot of those were in structure runs from the running backs uh, in week one, Fran. You notice all the jet motions and orbit gives, which is really important in week one. You put it on tape. You make defense prepare for it. You make them expect it. And then you really didn't see it for most of the season. But the fact they deployed it in week one, I thought was so important to the the basis and the foundation of the scheme. It's obviously a zone-based run attack. A lot of inside zone, a lot of outside zone, a lot of mid zone, but all those wrinkles and counters off of that as well. They start to work in some more gap schemes this year, a couple power runs, some counter action that looks like a lot of those zone schemes, which is a lot of fun. The shotgun versus under center. I felt like it was very balanced in their run attack and that they can execute both ways. The shotgun, a little bit more RPO based where you're maybe reading a leverage of a defender. The quarterback can read with his eyes, looking at the defense, the under center stuff. A lot of that has play action wrinkles coming off of it. So everything in the run game has an extra wrinkle, extra element and layers to it. And the multiplicity <laughs> of the run scheme, you just don't know what's coming on a down to down basis. And now you have a three headed attack with Aaron Jones, AJ Dillon, Jamal Williams. Some people are upset to say Aaron Jones, 19 touchdowns last year. Where is that production this year? This is a preservation of Aaron Jones as well. Look at how Alvin Kamara has always been used with the saints. Always had Mark Ingram this year, split in time with Latavius Murray. You want to keep these guys fresh. It's not so much about the volume, but quality snaps. And I think uh, looking at how they use and deploy the stable of backs, particularly last Saturday, where all three backs had touches in the first quarter. It's all about preservation, keeping fresh guys in there and keeping the defenses, uh, you know, constantly having to, uh, to handle different backs coming at them. So with that in mind, you, you hit on a couple of these topics, but I wanted to go through some stats that matter because that was uh, something that we did all throughout the season. We would pick them, you know, whatever the matchup was that week, and uh, you'd kind of take a deep dive into the numbers. And uh, I pulled a couple as well. You mentioned, um, you know, stuff from under center versus the gun. 61% of the runs happened in the shotgun. So, uh, you know, while it's heavier towards the gun, it's not like a, a huge, uh, you know, a huge. But that's tilt, surprising or the other. because it's an outside zone based foundation. So typically that's under center. So that's, you know, Jared Goff, that's the San Francisco 49ers. You have to play action boot. You have to be under center to do that. The fact the Packers also successful in heavy and shotgun runs. I mean, Matt LaFleur is his own coach now. He's so quickly associated to McVay and Shanahan. 
he's doing some of his own things and it's really fun to uh, kind of track it. Well, that's what only seven of the 44 plays I actually tagged as outside zone. It was uh, to me, I, I felt it was a lot more uh, inside zone split zone. You saw some mid zone as well, where, um, you know, the, the back and the, and the offensive line on kind of different paths in terms of their angle of departure. But I thought it was a lot more inside zone, keep the, the back as downhill as possible. And I thought that kind of played uh, to the strengths of those guys. Were there any other stats uh, that kind of stood out to you, uh, you know, after kind of looking at it? Well, I think taking a step back and just looking at their collective approach to the run game and recommitting to the run game. 2018, that last year under Mike McCarthy, they were 32nd in run percentage, 32nd in run percentage on first and 10. First year, LaFleur, he brings them back to the middle of the pack. They're 15th in both categories. 2020, they're 7th in both categories. They went from a bottom-dwelling run percentage, run commitment team, to a top 10. And when you look at the top 10 in the league, it's a lot of playoff teams in there, whether it's, you know, the Baltimore's and the Colts and the Tampa Bay's and all those teams that what works in September usually is going to keep working in January. You want to protect those veteran quarterbacks with a good rushing attack. This is a really good formula. And then what do you see in 2020? The play action, 22 touchdowns, zero interceptions last year. He had three touchdowns, one interception, huge influx of play action success. Also leading the NFL in time of possession, 10 play drives, five minute drives. They can win games in the second half with ball control. I think you're seeing a little bit fresher legs from the defense because of that. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting how this all kind of affects the entire team, the entire organization by imposing your will in the run game and being a balanced offensive attack, which the analytics community may say elsewise, you know, that yes, first and 10 running, isn't as successful as passing and the yards per play aren't as great, but it's a completely different approach when you're in the trenches and getting fired off on for 40, 50 times a game in the run game. It's not a lot of fun for him. Well, it's something I, I'm going to hit on a little bit later here in the show uh, on a topic that I think kind of centers around that. I, I agree with you. I think when you're looking at complementary football, a lot of people think of that as run versus pass, but it also is offense and defense. And when you have an offense that can operate this way, that does help your defense. It keeps your defense fresh and, and uh, you know, on the sidelines. And then now they're going full bore when they're out there as well. Just a couple of the numbers. Just This is just purely from me charting. Uh, 75% of the runs from, from the way I counted it uh, were zone runs. So that kind of speaks heavy zone scheme um, you know, with Matt LaFleur. 61% of the runs came out of the gun, as we talked about. They had eight runs from 21 personnel. And I thought it was notable that on six of those runs, you had backfield action, you know, whether it was orbit motion, jet sweep action. And I obviously Tyler Irvin, a big part of that. Um, but I think that that was kind of notable as, Hey, when they came out in those two back sets, those pony sets, they were typically using the, one of those backs and typically it was Irvin as some kind of, you know, eye candy in the backfield. And um, so you, know, you had a 75% of those 21 personnel runs had that backfield action. It was just 41% on all the other runs. So I think that kind of speaks to uh, how they viewed their 21 personnel set and how to kind of get some advantages there uh, in the run game, creating some angles with some of those backfield actions. The other big thing that I thought was interesting and I kept track well, of this. Well, real, real quick, Fred, right. real quick, yeah. before you put, put to bed the backfield action, Tyler Irvin's been out for half the season. Yep. And then That's we've seen MVS, uh, Valdez Scantling, Lazar, Devontae yep. Adams in that role. They since picked up Tavon Austin. Is that jet motion role really dependent on speed or is it more a 
schematic philosophy of stretching a defense horizontally that doesn't have to be a 4-3 player in order to get a defense to respect that. How do you feel about, for lack of better words, putting a tight end in that jet motion spot? Does it still work? I think so to me, in my opinion, yes, it still works. I would love to give some truth serum to some safeties and some linebackers, uh, you know, playing in the, in the NFL right now, not guys that played uh, years ago, but guys that are playing right now that would say like, Hey, like if you see a slower receiver, a 215 pound receiver going in jet motion, does that get the same kind of response from you as if you see a four, three player going motion? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. My guess is that you still have to execute the call against jet at the end of the day. You still, you know, whether you're rocking and rolling your safeties and you're adjusting and making those, you still have to make those calls regardless of who is going through that jet motion. Now, maybe your eyes are a little bit more keen to keep your eyes in the backfield as opposed to who that player is. If it's one, you know, one uh, movement piece versus another, but I think it's a a really interesting point. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, The other point that I was going to bring up, and this was kind of surprising to me. I charted this as we went. I wanted to see how many of the big runs came off plays where the running back cut back against the grain. If you had to guess, Mm. how many do you think were cutback runs? If you had to guess like a percentage? A lot. I would say 45 or 50%. So, dude, I thought it would be that high too. It was actually only a third. It was just about 33%. I was expecting it to be a lot Mm, higher. Um, So I thought that that was kind of interesting. Now, some of those gap runs, you're not going to see as many uh, as many you know, cutback lanes on you know power lead or something like that. But uh, I did think that was kind of an interesting number uh, when it was all said and done. So now the big thing we will try and do every week is we're just going to try and I'll throw five burning questions at you. We'll call five burning questions coming off of watching it, and we'll change the questions up every week. But just some things to kind of spark some conversation here. And the first one to me is the most important piece: who makes this go? Who is it that you feel is the the igniter for this offense? It could be a player, it could be a coach, but at the end of the day, who is the the ultimate engine that gets this run game going? I think it's the scheme and the balance yeah. and all the elements of making a defense wrong. And you see so many plays where players are blocked without blocking them. Yep. And the only thing to attribute to that is the commitment to the run game, the believability of the run game, and respecting all the schematic threats of the run game, whether that's holding defenders with boot fakes or the jet motion or the misdirection stuff, the amount of times that they have explosive runs where three players aren't blocked on the backside, it's just easy offense. I can't attribute that to anybody else. That's not the running back. That's not the quarterback putting them a good look. That's not the offensive line getting movement. It's so exciting to see an offense generate easy yardage through scheme. And it used to be such a detriment to say, oh, but look at the scheme. It's okay to help your quarterback. It's okay to help your running game generate yards and to confuse defenses. And then not, not only the within the down, you know, misdirections, but the RPOs, making a defense wrong, playing off the leverage of defenders. Pre-snap alerts, which is really fun to look at the difference between their RPOs, where they're reading the leverage post-snap, and something determined pre-snap, which are a lot of those alerts. If they see a corner off of Devontae, he'll just fire it out there real fast. Right. But it's constantly making a defense wrong. There is no perfect coverage or defense. Everybody would play it. There's vulnerabilities. Find those vulnerabilities and attack them. And I think what LaFleur has done to put all these players in positions to be successful is really fun to watch. Yeah, I think that that's spot on. I agree with you that I feel like the scheme ultimately, uh, you know, gets that thing going. That being said, 
it's just a lot of fun to watch Aaron Jones too. I, I mean, he is, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned it earlier. He's just, I feel like he's so underrated. Um, you know, some of the traits that stand out, this really can kind of bring us into the, the second question I had for you, which was which running back trait stood out most to you. And I'll kind of kick things off to me. It was balance and the, the, your, your ability mm-hmm. to kind of play through contact because uh, just looking, I know we did 44 runs, right? The four, and the way I watched, I don't know how you watched it. I watched them in order of, uh, you know, longest run down to the shortest run. So from uh, 40, I think the longest was 77. It was the touchdown run uh, by Aaron Jones against the Eagles, actually. And then all the way down to the 10. I- so that I, so I watched it that, you know, from that way, you know, working from longest down to shortest of the 20 longest runs. Okay. More than half of them featured the running back being able to make that first man miss. And the majority of those were not, oh man, look at that shake in the hole. Look at his ability to kind of, you know, to, uh, you know, make that first man miss and, you know, show, throw him a little shimmy there, uh, you know, and get by him. No, it was, hey, I'm running through arm tackles. I'm bouncing off contact. And it wasn't necessarily even like the pure power that you're going to see from Derrick Henry. It was just, hey, like if you get a hand on me, if you get an arm on me, I'm not going down and I'm constantly running with forward lean. I'm going to stay upright. You see him working constantly for extra contact, whether it was using the stiff arm, his stiff arm was excellent all season long. I felt uh, you see him stumble bumming through contact where he's going to use that off arm to, you know, put it on the ground and kind of use it as like a third leg to stay upright. <laughs> all those things to be able to stay alive as a runner, pick up those extra yardage. I thought that it overall contact balance really, really stood out. And so Aaron Jones, I think he was responsible for 23 of the 44 long runs. Um, it was, which was the majority in the scheme. I think when you look at him, uh, just that's really what stands out to me about Jones is uh, his overall contact balance and competitiveness as a runner. Well, those are the two traits I've written down is what running back traits stood out the most. Aaron Jones, make you miss Aaron yep. Jones vision. So I'm glad yep. you covered the make you miss. Yep. I'm going to go with the vision. And it's really funny that you asked me how many runs were the cutback runs. And right. I said, maybe 45 or 50%. And he said, no, it's about a third. And a project I've been working on for about two weeks or so is categorizing all the different zone paths of Aaron Jones. Yep. And we talk about this quite a bit, uh, especially in outside zone, the bounce, the bang, and the bend, the three different paths. You could take it outside, you could take it up in the middle, or take it out the backside. What did I just list? One, two, three different paths. How many cutbacks did he have? A third. He is so yeah, balanced. Right. That's a good point. In, yeah. in, in his zone approach that he can hit it out of any of those paths. And he has the ability to, whether it's, you know, hitting with speed out the front side, a little bit of patience and power through the middle or having that patience and vision out the backside. Um, really and fun to see the vision, the make you miss. And a big conversation right now with 2017 class rookies, particularly running backs, Christian McCaffrey was paid. Joe Mixon was paid. Uh, Dalvin Cook was paid. Alan Kamara was paid. Everybody's wondering about 19 touchdown Aaron Jones last year, and he's one obviously one of the stars in the NFL. Is it the system working, or is Aaron Jones special? And I think Aaron Jones is a special player. And just for all the things you had mentioned about the make you miss, making defenders miss uh, in the backfield, not only in the backfield, but in the open field as well, which he takes a lot of those eight, nine, 10 yard runs into 40 yard touchdowns because of what he does to safeties, not only with elusiveness, but power as well. And then hitting his speed in the open field. I think all that stuff he does for himself is what makes him special, but it's the, again, the combination of scheme and talent is where you end up with a absolutely deadly offensive attack. And that's, that's the 2020 Packers. It's a perfect marriage 
of having elite talent with an elite scheme. So this next question, our third burning question, is a little bit tougher for me to ask you because uh, you watch this team every week. You write about them on The Athletic every single week. But who is the most surprising player going back and watching all 44 of these plays? Who was a guy on that offense that stood out to you most? You say, you know what? Like, I kind of came, came away from this thinking a little bit differently about this guy uh, than I would have originally. All right, so two things in particular. First, okay. very, very quickly, Alan Lazard. He is the number two receiver in this offense, not because he's the number two in receiving production, because he deserves the second most snaps behind Devontae Adams. Why? Because he blocks his butt off. He's nearly 230 pounds, undrafted free agent. The Jags want to make him a tight end. He has a lot of tight split alignments. He can handle linebackers and safeties. He can handle defensive ends. I was really impressed with the tight ends, particularly Tunyon. Obviously, Mercedes Lewis and his, you know, wide tight end role. But Alan Lazard's ability to block is really why he's so successful on these play action concepts as well, because of the believability in the run game. Right. But anyways, put that to bed. The other guy is Corey Lindsley. Mm. His subtle quickness off the ball for him. Very much so, yeah. Is the make or break to the run game. The inside out. If the center gets blown up, typically the run's getting blown up. It's the run game is such an inside out attack that if the center doesn't get off the ball fast, seal that initial nose tackle, zero, one shade in the run game, that's kind of where it all starts with the success of the run. So Lindsley's not the biggest guy. He doesn't have a whole lot of wow moments. He doesn't get out in space like a Jason Kelsey does. He doesn't pancake guys. It's just subtle little moves off the ball to seal a defender for half a second, and then that's it. It's over. But it's reason why Corey Lindsay was an, an AP All-Pro this yep. past year at center because of that. And I'm glad he got that recognition because a lot of love goes to Bakhtiari. A lot of love goes to Elton Jenkins and Aaron Rodgers and all the other stars. Corey Lindsay's a really good player. So let me tell you what I, one of the things I did is as I'm watching, all right, I, I've just taken notes down. And one of the things I tried to take note of was, hey, who, who delivered the key block or the, the two key blocks that freed this run up? Right. So who are the guys? And I just, I just wrote the name down. I didn't say the kind of block or what they did. Just wrote, wrote a name down, whether it was an offensive lineman, tight end receiver, whatever it was. And there were a bunch of guys that made this list, right? You mentioned Alan Lazard. He had the same amount as Ricky Wagner, who was a rotational tackle. He had, he had a handful of them. Mercedes Lewis had, had like four or five of them. Um, uh, Billy Turner and John Runyon, the rookie who was a part-time player, didn't play you know a full slate of games. He had a bunch of them when he when he did play. Uh, so give Runyon a lot of credit. Corey Lindsley had six. Elton Jenkins, who I'll tell you what, he is a good player already, man. Year <laughs> two, he is a really really good player. Uh, his athleticism on reach blocks, I mean, really 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 impressive. What he was able to do uh, backside and then he, even moving people. You talk about the versatility as well. You saw about a couple different positions uh, doing it. I was really impressed with Elton Jenkins. He had the second most, or he had the third most at eight. David Bakhtiari had nine. The guy who I wrote down ten times as having a block that sprung the run open, Lucas Patrick. Dude, he he was oh, like, okay. and he was like, and he was like moving people too. Like I was, I was <laughs> impressed, man. He, a guy that I didn't, I don't know much about coming in. Uh, I thought he had, he was one of the the uh, you know one of the big reasons why. I was sitting here checking a lot of these Packers. Runs you were running out of guys. I'm like, who else is he going to give this to? I forgot about <laughs> Lucas Patrick, right card. Dude, and was, you know, there were some. There were kickout blocks. You know, as a puller, there were some where uh, you know he's just moving guys one on one. I thought that uh, you know in their zone schemes. There were sometimes because a lot of times we're looking at combo blocks and you know and smashing stacks and double teams and all that. There were a lot of times where those guys in the interior 
if you know, especially was the front side guard was left one on one with the three technique. And so you see, uh, you know, uh, Elton Jenkins one on one, you see Lucas Patrick one on one. I thought Patrick did a nice job of just being able to create that just a little bit of movement so that if Jones or Jamal Williams was able to work downhill, that you know, they were able to run right off his backside. I thought there were a handful of runs that looked just like that. So Lucas Patrick would be the name uh, that most surprised me, I would say. Uh, That's pretty interesting because he's probably the least uh, known of the group. Actually, one of the longer tenured of the group. But because of that, he's not a starter. He wasn't a starter last year. He wasn't yep. an incumbent starter heading into this year. Probably Lane Taylor would have been that right guard spot yep. uh, if we had it in a perfect world. But uh, really interesting that they let Brian Bulaga go to L.A. Chargers in free agency. So they signed Rick Wagner, but nobody really in the draft to contribute to the tackle spot. So they moved, uh, obviously, Billy Turner around. He's played right tackle, right guard, left tackle now for David Bakhtiari. It was great to see the rookie John Runyon Jr. in there play some left guard. These guys have played up and down the line. We've already talked about Elton Jenkins. He started games at every offensive line spot so far in his young career, uh, something that we've given a lot of credit and attention to some Eagles like Isaac Sayamalo for his versatility. Um, but this, that group in general, not a whole lot of Maulers, you know, not a whole lot of people movers. I guess Billy Turner is the, a little bit of the outlier of the group, but their athleticism, their ability to get off the ball and seal people in that zone game is so important. I would say if I were to char- characterize all these guys, I would say Patrick is the people mover of that group. Uh, I would say he is the guy that generates the most movement uh, on his own. I think, I think the other guys you win with athleticism, technique, effort. Um, but I thought he was the guy that generated the best movement. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, I think that's fair. And yeah. it's kind of a, in a different profile because he yep. actually looks like one of the smaller being sandwiched there next to B- Big Billy Turner or Rick right. Wagner. He's a little bit of the undersized, but he's definitely that pit bull guy that just does not get off you. He puts his face into your chest and just keeps running his feet. A little dirty, a little scrappy, but we like that in our guards. That's right. We need a little bit of that. Uh, <laughs> all right, so let's go to the fourth burning question. One thing you loved most about the scheme? What was one thing that stood out to you? They're like, man, you know, I just love that they do this. Um, probably just echoing the same, the variety and the multiplicity of it all. Mm. Um, the fact that they can hit you with a style of run, style of run, style of run. It looks like that style and then it's not. And uh, whether you want to attribute that to play design wrinkles, play sequencing, you know, the misdirection aspect in the scheme. Um, I just love how how multiple it is and self-scouting this past offseason and making sure you're more diverse and more multiple in the run game is a point of, you know, growing as a as a play designer, play caller. And I think we've seen the full uh, LaFleur package. I'm not sure if there was something about the scheme that really uh, stood out to you. So one thing that I that occurred to me, it was like I was probably like 10, 12 plays in and I, I did so by just and then I went back and rewatched the plays I've done so often. And you talk about this a lot. It's about trying to attack the bubbles of the defense. Where are the soft spots in the front? And I thought that there were so many plays where you could just look freeze frame right before the snap and say, where is the line, where's the defensive front seven? Just a little bit soft in their alignment right now. Where is the bubble where there's not enough of the, the opposing color where you would say, okay, this is where, if we're going to run it, this is where we want the ball to go. And so often, guess what? That's where the ball went. I thought they did a great job of attacking the bubbles of the defense. I love, too, that they're playing to the strengths of those backs where you're getting those guys downhill. Because even though uh, you know, you're in, a, in a, a zone scheme and a lot of a shotgun runs, you're getting Aaron Jones downhill. You're getting Jamal. There weren't a lot of plays where Jamal Williams is running east-west. 
His, his hmm. big plays. And look, I know at the end of the day, we're essentially watching a highlight tape, right? We're watching all, the, all their best runs. So we didn't see uh, the tackles for loss where maybe Jamal Williams was going east-west and we don't see that. But in just watching uh, you know, those big plays, I thought one thing that stood out is that you, they were able to keep those guys downhill. There was not a lot of east-west. There was no wasted movement. I think that speaks to the decisiveness and the vision that you talked about earlier uh, with Aaron Jones. But I love that they were getting those guys downhill, even in their zone schemes. And I loved the fact that but just before the snap, and for people that are listening, if you went back and just watched some of those plays, just see, hey, where's the where is just a little bit of space there where the, the offense could try and take advantage? I thought that showed up more often than not. Well, I know we watched the explosive runs, the over 10-yard, so that means we probably didn't watch a lot of three, four-yard runs on right. third and one. Who do you think their primary short yardage back was in 2020? I would guess Jamal Williams would be my guess. 100%. He yeah. has as no nonsense a back with his – nearly 230 pound frame. He's put on some LBs since uh, BYU. He comes downhill, doesn't have a whole lot of vision, doesn't have a whole lot of creativity, but that's okay. Cause there's a place for that too. And he'll carry and drag defenders. He's got a little shimmy and shake in the hole and he can, you know, make some cuts out the back door, but he is a no nonsense guy. He'll lower his pads. He'll put his face through a linebacker. He is a tough guy. And the fact that he's the middle back between the elusive creative Aaron Jones in this 250-pound bell cow and A.J. Dillon that we're not entirely sure who he is yet. But the fact that Jamal Williams is kind of the mix of the two is really interesting. So my next question I have for you, and this is, I think, my favorite one of the five. What's one thing that you think you noticed that the other guy didn't? So what's something that you, Ben, noticed that you don't think I did? And I'll do, I'll do what mine is uh, after All you. Right, yeah, you go, no, you go first. You go oh, first. I'll, go, I'll go first. So for me, and this is, I kind of alluded to this earlier, Nearly 60% of the runs happened in the second half. I was keeping an eye on like when, you know, when, mm. what quarter they ha- kind of happened in. So more, well more than half happened in the second half of games. And same thing, well more than half of those plays happened in the second half of the season. So when you talk about a commitment to the run game and body blows and uh, just being able to uh, assert your will against the defense and what that can do over the course of time, I think when you have a, an offense that has that kind of identity, and by the way, I do, lo- I love the idea of an offensive identity being, you know, whether, whether it's the run game pass game, you know, having a, a core set of staples offensively and saying, this is, this is who we are. This is what we do. I really think that there's a, there's a lot to be said for that. And I think when you look at this run game, it's a great example, but I do think when you look at the way that these guys are built, the way that they want to try and attack you, the fact that so many of these runs happen third quarter, fourth quarter, November, December, early January, Go and look at what this was this past weekend when they when they, when uh, they hosted the LA Rams and what they did. I think that 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 speaks a lot to that identity. And this is why I've tongue in cheek been calling Aaron Rodgers in 2020 an elite game manager. And it's not a negative when I say a game manager. You know who wants a game manager, friend? Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> but how he's being used in this offense is a game managing quarterback. Look at some of his stat lines the past couple of weeks, 19 to 24, four touchdowns, 21 to 25, four touchdowns, you know, 21 of 28, three touchdowns. It's not a high volume dropping back 40, 50 times, putting the team on your back every third down, every second half, like we saw in the mid 2010s under McCarthy, where it was like pulling teeth to move the ball down the field. It was Aaron Rodgers or nothing. So the fact that, you're making the quarterback's life easier. And in the flash 18 months, two years, this has turned into a quarterback-friendly system. And that's okay. 
that's not a negative to Aaron Rodgers. It's a preservation of Aaron Rodgers' ability. And to say, you know what? If he plays from the pocket, plays within structure, plays in a balanced scheme, and keeps himself fresh. I don't know if you saw on Saturday, his jersey looked pretty good after the game, barely a grass stain on it for a playoff game. He could play till he's 44, 45 years old. And that should be an exciting proposition to Packers fans to say, this guy is still talented, but in combination and implemented into an effective scheme, this guy could play for as long as he wants. QB friendly used to be like this dirty word in the NFL. No question. Yeah. And not with like coaches. Maybe, I mean, maybe with coach, but I'm saying with like in terms of like media and like coverage of the sport. Well, where does that come from? Is it the air raid paint by numbers type of system that it's like, oh, he's the system quarterback. He's not doing it. The system's doing it. Anything that was college into the NFL always came with a negative, you know, association that. Oh, that's college. That's taking advantage of the scheme or the space or why is that have such a negative connotation to it? Or it yeah. did at, at some point. It did. I feel like that's, I feel like that's for the most part, for the most part going by the wayside. I feel like there was just this element of hubris that went along with, Oh, you know, like the college game that, that that's not going to play. The, that argument is thinner and thinner and thinner with each passing year. You're seeing hmm. all around uh, the NFL, you know, different examples to why that's the, not the case anymore. But uh, And we've talked about this off, off camera about what Peyton Manning did to the quarterback evaluation. Right. Everybody wanted that cerebral yep. field general. That's always yep. going to get him into the perfect play, perfect look, offensive coordinator on the field. That was the mold. I got news for you. Those don't come around every year. They don't come around every 10 years. I don't think they come around every 25 years. Right. Do not prepare for an outlier. And I think we're coming back to saying, you know what, what can we do to help our quarterbacks? And I think reflecting to the Philadelphia Eagles in 2020 and moving forward, there's a lot of self-reflecting questions to say, what can we do to help our quarterback positions? They're talented players. We've seen it. Can it be fixed? And I think Green Bay is a great example of a reclamation project to say it struggled. It was bad. They fixed it. They had ability and they fixed it. Yeah, I think that that is uh, really an interesting note to kind of wrap up that conversation with. So to me, the one thing I always want to do with these segments, I want to try and keep them topical, right? And, and that can be a little bit tough because we want to try and stay a week ahead in terms of who we're going to plan to, to watch next week. But that being said, we picked the Packers. So I, I kind of had, a, I had an inkling that they beat uh, the LA Rams this past week in the cold up in, uh, up at Lambeau. So the thought was, all right, they're going to take, they're going to go on and play in the NFC title game. That being said, they're taking on the Tampa Bay Bucks. I want to kind of get your thoughts. What do you think about this this Packers offense, this run game uh, going up against Tampa Bay and Todd Bowles, blitz-heavy defense? Uh, what are you expecting to, to see in this matchup? Well, a lot of people are pointing to that week six game, which Tampa Bay beat the Packers as, as good as anyone had in 2020. Yep. Uh, they stopped the run early. The Packers really kind of ditched the game plan early, which was the first time all year we've seen that. Rodgers threw some uncharacteristic turnovers, particularly a pick six, another one deep in his own end, something that he has not done uh, at all in his career for the most part. And they got themselves in a third and mediums, third and long situations, and Bulls sent the dogs at them. And a combination of things from the running backs being poor in pass pro, that was also the game Bakhtiari got injured and had to move Rick Wagner over there. And then Aaron Rodgers' eyes started to drop. Against the blitz that game, through two picks, three sacks. It was like a 17 quarterback rating. But since then, he has not taken a sack against the Blitz. That was week six. So they've improved on some things. There's some schematic elements to point to, particularly 
keeping the running backs in for pass protection. We haven't seen those cool, creative plays of Aaron Jones in the past game pretty much the entire second half of the season. Why? A little bit extra protection up front, you know, for those some of those blitzes on third down. Um, but the fact the Bucks are going to get Vita Vea back, it sounds like. And then Dominican Sue, this guy is amazing, Fran. And you could give love to Pierre Paul and Devin White and Levante David. They might have rookies of the year on both sides and Tristan Wirfs and Antoine Winfield, if they ever wanted to give it to an offensive lineman. But in Dominican Sue, this guy is the ageless wonder. He's 34 years old, never misses a game, plays 75% of the snaps, gets no love from media or fantasy teams or whatever. Collectively, you got to run the ball. And that's my formula to stop the Bucks. That's my formula to stop the Packers, make these teams one-dimensional. Um, and if the Packers can run the ball, everything opens up. And I think as we both study the run game this week, you just see the softness that it kind of imposes on a defense. Yeah, well, we will uh, get a chance to watch this matchup this weekend. Excited to see uh, just a, a rematch here that, you know, uh, as you alluded to, it was uh, one of the big, biggest losses for Green Bay this regular season. But uh, this offense is humming. This defense is going to try and work to be opt- opt- opportunistic against Tom Brady and that offense excited for that matchup. Now, no, weird. The, uh, the Chiefs game was also a week six rematch. Chiefs that's, Bills week oh, six. Yeah. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. And that game was a little bit thrown off. Wasn't there like there was some COVID stuff going on with that game too? Wasn't there? Was it was it delayed or pushed forward? It was was something. Always always been some some COVID asterisks in games. That's a fair. That's a fair (laughs) point. Um, So what we're going to always try and do is we're always going to try at the end and look ahead to next week and kind of let the listeners know what is it that we're going to cover for next week's episode. Now. James Harden isolation situations. Oh, that's the last. I'll tell you what. That's the last (laughs) thing we're going to be covering here uh, on this show. That being said, uh, the one thing that I do want to give fans or give the listeners a little bit of insight to. Obviously, look, the Eagles are in the middle of a coaching search, and I would love, as I said earlier, to be topical with this segment. So. What I'd like to do is wait a couple days, and we'll see if the Eagles uh, do make a hire. Give my give ourselves a little bit of wiggle room. If they make a hire, great. Then we'll do something having to do uh, with whoever that new coach is. If they don't buy, say, we'll say like late Thursday on Friday, I'll put out on Twitter what our our combination will be, and we'll I'll run that uh, in the next podcast, the next Chalk Talk episode uh, of what the topic is that Ben and I will cover. But uh, you have any any, uh, any suggestions off the top of your head? What you're thinking? I want to. I'd like to do a. Pl- I want to try and do some player focused ones. So I'm thinking if if there is no new coach hire by the time we go to record um, for the next for next week, then maybe we'll do like uh, one of the rookie quarterbacks. Maybe we'll look back at like a, a Justin Herbert this year or uh, a Joe Burrow from the first couple of weeks, and uh, you know one of those guys. But uh, I'll keep my maybe maybe open. we'll see who comes out on top of the uh, championship weekend. Maybe it could be a little Travis Kelsey, maybe Stefan Diggs, maybe like some that. Chiefs RPO pass game. Uh, obviously, Big That's Red Andy Reid gives us a lot of cool stuff schematically to look That's at. That's a good point too. Yeah, maybe we'll uh, do something you know along those lines as well. So uh, we will keep you posted. I'll, I'll make sure I say by the time I record the Monday podcast, the Chalk Talk episode next week. We will know. I will make sure it's in that episode. So make sure you stay subscribed uh, right here on the feed. Until then, Ben, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us once again here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade. Experience the fastest internet and more in a snap. With Xfinity XFi, you get the speed, coverage, control, and security you need for the ultimate in-home Wi-Fi experience. Xfinity, proud partner of the Philadelphia Eagles. Great stuff from Ben, who you can follow on Twitter just like I do, at Ben Fennel underscore NFL. And while you're at it, I'm at Eagles XOs. That's where I post all of our X's and O's content that we produce here at Eagles Entertainment. And you know, I greatly appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on social media. That's one way to support the show. But the best way is to go into Apple Podcasts or Stitcher 
wherever you listen, and give us a rating and leave us a comment. I want to give a shout-out today to someone who did just that. EaglesFan51 left us a five-star review saying, Hi, Fran, would you rather see the Birds draft Jamar Chase or Devontae Smith at number six, or would you rather them see somebody else uh, at a different position? Thanks so much. So, uh, EaglesFan51, appreciate the question. It's one that we talk about all the time over on the Journey of the Draft podcast. Obviously, two great players in Jamar Chase and Devontae Smith. We were talking about both players all through, uh, really all going back to last summer, and I think it ultimately comes down to what you're looking for at the position. And while both guys share some straight, uh, some traits and share some uh, background kind of trends, I think both guys had historic seasons when you look at them from a production standpoint. I mean, Jamar Chase, when you go back and look what he did last year at LSU with Joe, uh, with Joe Burrow and that, and that whole offense, I mean, it was historic, the numbers that he put up. And you say, oh, you know, it's going to be a while before we see somebody do that again. And lo and behold, Devontae Smith comes and does the, almost the same exact thing this year for Alabama in, a, in an SEC-only schedule. So you look at Devontae Smith, you look at Jamar Chase, both guys play the ball extremely well in the air. They've got outstanding hands, and both guys are near automatic at the catch point. The, the hang-up you're going to get with Devontae Smith is going to be the size. What's he going to weigh in at? We'll get a better sense of that here in a few days uh, down at the Senior Bowl because he is heading down to Mobile. We talked about that uh, this week over on the Journey to the Draft. I think when you look at Smith, uh, you know, what's it going to be, 180 pounds? That's going to, that's going to scare some people. That's going to knock, knock him down uh, some people's boards. Chase, you don't have that same concern. The thing with Chase is we haven't seen him for a full year. He opted out uh, due to COVID-19 concerns back in the summer, so he did not play the entire 2020 season. So we haven't seen him for a year. You would say that Smith's probably a little bit more multidimensional in terms of his ability to work vertically, but Chase also can get down the field and make big plays. So I think when you look at both guys, you could say, look, they both have the skill set to be very productive NFL players. What do they bring to the table? We'll be having that debate every single week over on the Journey to the Draft podcast driven by AAA. So Eagles Fan 51, if you haven't already, make sure you go subscribe and you'll be able to get uh, you know, stay tuned to that debate all spring long. All right, to wrap up this show, I caught up with Eagles linebacker TJ Edwards to talk about his background and how that all led to becoming a linebacker in the NFL. Let's get to that interview right now. Well, excited to welcome in here on our one-on-one Eagles linebacker TJ Edwards. TJ, thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, appreciate you having me. All right, well, let's talk about your background because you were a great athlete in high school, three-sport guy. You played football, you played basketball, you played baseball. I want to first start with the other sports outside of football, though. I know that you played basketball, and I, as I mentioned, you played baseball too. How did those sports impact football at all? Did, the, did they at all? Did you take things from those two sports and apply them to the way that you play now? Yeah, it's difficult uh, to kind of correlate the, all three of them, but um, I think early on, you know, baseball was a, a, a big love of mine, probably the one that I liked the most, and uh, I had hoop dreams growing up, but, you know, as I progressed, I didn't grow as much and kind of came to be 6'1", so I figured I should probably go a different route. Um, but I just think all in general, just help you play better with that sport that you continue, uh, you know, being versatile in terms of, um, you know, the coordination of, of the games and things like that help a lot. What position did you play in basketball? So in basketball, I was the one and two, um, and then baseball, uh, I'd play center, a little short, uh, depending on how I was hitting, would affect my you know spot in the lineup. But <laughs> sure. So you were a, a point guard, you were a two guard in basketball. I know you played quarterback in high school. How did those two positions kind of correlate for you? Yeah, I think um, you know definitely playing point guard and playing quarterback, you're kind of used to uh, running the show. You know, you kind of used to setting things up for everybody else and uh, making sure that everyone's on the same page. So I think uh, you know playing that in, in basketball definitely helped me a lot in terms of being comfortable of of being in control really. 
And I know that you played both ways your senior year. Did you play both ways, uh, offense and defense, in uh, in high school? Um, so my senior year, I played like three or four games at, at safety, but it was, uh, you know, my junior and senior year were mostly all just quarterback. So it was really when I got to college, when I first really started playing defense full time. Sure. And what was that transition like for you? I know you redshirted your first year at Wisconsin. Was that all just, all right, I'm just, I'm going to get completely embedded on the defensive side of the football. And then that was part of the transition. Yeah, and, you know, just the jump from high school to college of the weight program and the, the physicality of the game and things like that definitely helped me a lot with that year. Um, but I just think, you know, going in, it was a, a little different just because, you know, I've always, you know, been playing quarterback or playing playing offense and things like that. But I always just loved the physicality of the game. Um, so I knew that linebacker would be, uh, be a good fit. And uh, being in the middle of the defense, there's no really better spot to be. Yeah, I know there are a lot of people kind of make that easy transition in terms of like, oh, well, quarterback on offense. Now you go to linebacker, yeah. quarterback of the defense. Are there things that do carry over or is that kind of like a, a lazy trope on our side from the media standpoint? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. You know, it's it's obviously, okay. you know, different levels. You know, you're going from high school to college. So the games beca- the game becomes more intricate and more uh, detailed and things like that. But um, I just think, you know, going from a quarterback to a middle linebacker, you are really comfortable of being in the center of things and um, kind of making sure that everyone's on the same page so um, if anything that's the part that really helped me the most to be honest with you how much of playing in the middle of the defense and being that guy for Wisconsin because I mean you were right from your redshirt freshman year you became an immediate starter how much how important is that part of it you know not even what you're doing once the the ball is snapped but just getting those guys lined up making the calls taking the signals in from the sideline how much of that is a big part of playing the middle linebacker position yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's it's a very big part of your job. Um, you know, obviously the the production and in terms of what you do when the ball is snapped is a, is a huge part, but uh, the defense relies on you to make sure to, you know, that we're in the right checks, we're in the right calls, and um, if, you know, they don't have that confidence in you to, you know, make those calls or know what you're doing, then um, there's going to be a lot of guys that are out of spots and out of positions. So uh, at all times, you really have to be, you know, on point in what you're doing, and it's definitely uh, one of the biggest things that we do, no doubt. So one of my favorite parts watching you at Wisconsin, I watched you as a junior, I watched you as a senior. You, first of all, you see things very, very quickly. And then you also take great angles to the football, whether it's downhill or laterally. Can you talk about how important is that to playing linebacker and understanding how to get – because not, you're not a highly productive player from a tackle standpoint without that trait. Just explain that for the, for the fans, for the people at home, how important that part of it is to the position. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I, taught, I was taught at a young age that angles and leverage is everything uh, playing linebacker. So, um, you know, seeing what's happening in front of you and being able to react off that is um, definitely good traits to what makes a good linebacker, something that I try to do, you know, every time. I think there's definitely some merit to, you know, shooting gaps and kind of, um, kind of just playing wild to the ball at times. I think there's definitely some, you know, merit to that, definitely. But, um, you know, being able to decipher plays and, and run through gaps when they're there and also take good angles to make sure that the play isn't, you know, broken is uh, something that I definitely try to do. Well, TJ, you're just wrapping up year two of your NFL career. Last question for you before we let you go. Is there one part of playing the position here in the NFL that you feel is not talked about enough? We've talked about a couple of the small things uh, so far that maybe isn't talked about with fans and media, but is there another aspect of the position you feel deserves a little bit more play? Um, you know, I think it's tough because I think every every position on the field, uh, there's ins and outs that I'm sure a lot of people don't know about. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people think things are, you know, very easy when they're uh, complete opposite of that. So I think you can say it for a lot of uh, different position groups in, in terms of, but I think you'd really have to kind of be able to, 
you know, be in it to see though how difficult it is. It's kind of hard to explain, but you just got to go out there and, and do your job and, and make sure that, you know, guys are lined up, make sure that you're, you know, in the right fits and making the plays that come to you and, um, you know, having the defense rally behind you. So I think it's, it's a definitely, you know, I'm blessed to play the position I'm playing and um, just want to keep getting better every day. Well, TJ, it's been fun watching you here and you too. Excited for year three. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks once again for joining us here on our 101. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me, Fran. Thanks so much to TJ Edwards and all of you out there for your continued support of this show and all the rest of our podcasts here at Eagles Entertainment. All that being said, I think that'll do it. Another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast fueled by Gatorade for everybody here at the Duffy House. I'm Fran Duffy. We'll talk to you next week. Raise a glass to that comforting feeling of an Eagles touchdown with the all-new Broaden Patterson Wine Collection created in partnership with Wink. Featuring a Cabernet, a Rosé, and a Chardonnay, Broaden Patterson Wines are the perfect pairing for any occasion. Now you can bring the sweet taste of victory with you to a dinner with friends or to the tailgate with your game day crew. Purchase online today at philadelphiaeagles.com wine to stock up and have Broaden Patterson delivered right to your door. A portion of proceeds from every bottle benefit Eagles Autism Foundation.